Good afternoon. It's Friday the 17th of September 2021, just after one o'clock. Clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, I'm glad to see you back, Patrick. Uh, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century War. Great to be back, Mike. Yeah, good stuff. Right. So, uh, well, we're going to get straight on. Wednesday was a busy day. Uh, just all the announcements came after Wednesday's news program, of course. But uh, we're going to start off with the new AUKUS partnership. Is that how we pronounce it? Not really sure. I'm sure Joe Biden's going to tell us in just one second. But this is the United Kingdom. The United States and Australia have agreed what they describe as a landmark defense and security partnership that will defend our secured interests around the world. I'm not sure who our is, but that's what they're saying. Um, and uh, so it's going to see the US, the UK, uh, and uh, Australia, or at least Australia is going to be provided with the technology to build nuclear parts submarines for the same time. Now, they were very, or Boris Johnson was very keen to make sure that everybody understood that this was uh, nuclear powered submarines. So they have a, a, a nuclear reactor on there to provide propulsion, but nothing else. So there's no nuclear weapons on there. Um, but, uh, well, Joe stole the show, I have to say. Um, they had a bit of a press conference, and uh, Joe was in the middle. Uh, the Australian Prime Minister uh, on the left and Boris Johnson on the right. Um, and strangely enough, Joe didn't say anything. Uh, it was the Australian Prime Minister that led off. Uh, they weren't in person, I should have said, uh, because uh, the Australian Prime Minister and the and, and uh, Boris Johnson um, on uh, on screen only. So uh, after they had both spoken, uh, Joe thanked them. Let's have a listen to how that went. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Thank you very much, pal. Appreciate it, Mr. Prime Minister. I uh, am honored today to be joined by two of America's closest allies, Australia and the United Kingdom, to launch a new phase of the trilateral security cooperation among our countries. As Prime Minister Morrison and Prime Minister Johnson said, I want to thank you for this partnership, your vision as we embark together on this strategic mission. Although Australia, the UK and US partnership, AUKUS, it sounds strange, there's all these acronyms, but it's, it's a good one. I think uh, he shouldn't bother trying to ad lib there because he only seems to be able to remember people's names when they're on the autocue. On the autocue, yeah. So it did come up eventually, Morrison, so he, he, he managed to see the name, but before that, Joe yeah. was completely. Is, is, is it common for pre uh, presidents of the United States to call other heads of state pal? Well, to be to be fair, possibly to Joe, um, Scott Morrison is very forgettable. Uh, there's, he just kind of blends into the background and lets his uh, premiers in the various states run their police states at the moment. So, yeah, he is sort of a gray character as uh, as prime ministers go. Um, so uh, Boris then went on to say uh, that AUKUS will provide security and stability around the world and will. Uh, generate hundreds of highly skilled jobs as we level up. So all the language was in there. Um, it's an historic opportunity for the three nations with like-minded like allies and partners to pro uh, project shared values and promote security and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, and this is going to be, that. Really, some people are calling this the most significant security arrangement between the three nations since World War II. That may be because there hasn't been any other uh, in the meantime. Uh, specifically. But look, uh, what is this all about? Um, well, it's very much being presented by the UK government as being part of its uh, Global Britain mantra and part of the integrated defence review and the integrated operating concept. So I just wanted to remind you, everybody, what uh, what this is. 
um, because this is a shift in Britain's uh, sort of position with respect to, to the military and defense and so on. Um, the central idea, they say, of the integrated operating concept is offensive rather than defensive. And I think this is really pretty key. Uh, and we're trying to bring other nations on board uh, to push forward with this, uh, with this idea. Um, so what else did they have to say about it? Uh, the central idea of the integrated operating concept is to drive the conditions and tempo of strategic activity rather than responding to the actions of others. Right, so that is the offensive part. That's basically what that says. Provocations. Provocations. And we're seeing this, we've been seeing this for years with provocations against Russia. We're now seeing it with provocations against China. Um, it went on to say when the integrated operating concept was announced that the old distinction between foreign and domestic defense is increasingly irrelevant. And this is really key uh, because the, uh, the, various, uh, the, the chief of the defense staff, the chief of the uh, uh, general staff as well, both those gents have made the point in their own way that the concepts of war and peace are no longer binary concepts. We are on a spectrum. In other words, they're proposing, they're pushing this concept that we are in perpetual war, but not only perpetual war with Russia and China, actually we're in perpetual war with ourselves. The old distinction between foreign and domestic defense is increasingly irrelevant. When fake news appears to originate not abroad, but at home, it gains credibility and reach stoking confusion, disagreement, division, and doubt in our societies. This has been particularly uh, evident with a significant uptick in disinformation and misinformation, sorry, misinformation during the coronavirus crisis. And it went on to say, home is no longer a secure sanctuary, whence we may choose to launch interventions unhindered. Away is no longer a regional horizon, but a global one involving space and the electromagnetic spectrum. So it's it's uh, full spectrum uh, warfare. So just to translate this a little bit, the key point here is the military no longer uh, feel the military uh, establishment no longer feel that when they come home that they're in a safe environment. That actually home is another battlefront, just like abroad, uh, and because of the so-called disinformation and misinformation war. So it is uh, full spectrum. We're on a spectrum. It's not a binary state. There is no such thing as peace anymore. We're in a state of war with everybody, and everybody is the enemy. This is straight out of George Orwell's 1984. Yes. Chapter and verse. Yes. You know, always at war with East Asia. You know, Oceania's always been war with East Asia. I mean, you, you couldn't make it up. No. Right. So what is this, uh, this partnership with uh, Australia and the United States uh, got to do with this? Well, it's part and parcel of it because, as I say, it's not just foreign uh, enemies. And in this case, uh, this is the trigger to sort of uh, focus on China a little bit. But what, just quickly, when they say fake news at home and saying that this is some big national security threat, they're talking about any analysis, any opinion or view that goes against the government. And, and yes. that's a threat and it sows confusion and so forth. This is what they tried to do with the integrity initiative. Uh, and all these other sort of little projects and uh, police policing projects of, of media and alternative media. So what they're afraid of is losing the narrative. And without the narrative, they can't prosecute what they really want to do, which is whatever, uh, running a military industrial complex globally, basically. Well, uh, absolutely. That's absolutely the case. So uh, as I say, in this case, this is about putting pressure on China because we've got to have foreign enemies as well as domestic enemies. Uh, well, this has been the the Chinese reaction to it, they were quite upset, uh, you might say, uh, that it risks severely damaging regional peace and intensifying the arms race. They very much 
uh, view Australia uh, now as a potential enemy uh, rather than a potential friend. Mm -hmm. But then the question is, what about the European Union? Why were they not involved in this? Because this ostensibly seems to be something that's happening on the fringes of NATO, but the uh, EU member states are also members of NATO. Uh, well, here is uh, uh, Jean-Yves Le Drian, the uh, French foreign minister. Uh, he called it a real stab in the back. Uh, we had established a relationship of trust with Australia. This trust has been betrayed. And I just wanted to say, um, really, we shouldn't read too much into statements like this from the French foreign minister, because if we only go back a couple of weeks, uh, we were hearing all kinds of statements about the special relationship between Britain and the United States being smashed to pieces as a result of the Afghanistan debacle. Um, well, this is a typical example of it from uh, foreign policy magazine, Britain's special relationship fantasy has been exposed. And yet here we are two weeks later, uh, signing into a new defense pact, including the United States. So the, the rhetoric that, that is developed around these types of initiatives and around what happened in Afghanistan and so on is just rhetoric. Well, one of the things the French are most upset about is the $66 billion contract, which they've supposedly lost uh, doing that nuclear deal with Australia. So there's a lot of French companies and employees, contractors, lobbyists that are really, really, really upset yes. about that because, you know, it's hard to find business these days. Yes, so. but, but that's just, yes, that, that's true. But uh, in a few weeks' time, what's the situation going to be? There'll be another contract that'll come along, mm -hmm. right? But As long as it's not with Russia to sell battleships, France will be okay. Indeed. <laughs> uh, but uh, Ursula von der Leyen, well, she couldn't miss this opportunity because, of course, uh, any opportunity to get some momentum back into the European Defence Union project uh, had to be taken. So she was in the uh, European Parliament uh, yesterday. Europe can and clearly should be able and willing to do more on its own trying once again to push uh, the Defence Union project, which she effectively got the job of, uh, of President of the European Commission uh, on the basis of campaigning on that very subject. Uh, and uh, she very much keen to see that develop because uh, she doesn't, well, it, it was initially from her point of view because of the threats that Trump was making uh, because the EU and EU countries weren't contributing enough to the defence budget. Um, but uh, since that point, they did get a bit of momentum over PESCO and so on. Things seem to have stalled, not at least in a practical level with, with respect to, to money. Uh, but there's been politics going on in the background, and they're hoping that this incident is going to provide a bit of momentum for it. So she's riding on the back of French angst, yes. basically. Yes. But the reality, Mike, is uh, that the European countries are not spending. Uh, the spending's down uh, on defense. So, yes. you know, the whole the drive for an EU integrated military defense force and playing a role globally, um, that, that's really kind of stalling a little bit. In, in other words, the momentum is not there, like you said. Uh, it was when they were signing PESCO and all of those watermarks were deals, hit. Yes. Deals were hit. Yeah, that's, that's slowed down quite a bit. I mean, Britain leaving Europe has also um, t taking a little bit of momentum out of that as well. Uh, but but if, we, if there are more and more announcements like this with these other kinds of projects going on where the EU is kind of being sidelined, that's going to push a bit more momentum back into it. So, and I think there's, that's part yeah. of what's been going on here. But anyway, uh, what else is going on in Australia? Well, Australia, Australia, everybody's looking and watching at Australia and there's very strange things happening uh, down under. Let's just take a look at what some of those things are. We're going to say Australia under occupation, Mike. These are scenes 
that are coming out every day. We're seeing uh, abuse by uh, police of the citizenry, uh, uh, states like New South Wales, Victoria, pursuing a zero COVID strategy, locking down with just you know a few cases popping up here and there. Uh, look, I've got a news, uh, news package here, which you'll be able to see some of the activity that's been going on. You just hear, listen to the rhetoric and how uh, fanatical uh, and hysterical it is. This has become the norm uh, in Australia, it is definitely uh, a, a, a country under occupation. By who, uh, we're not quite sure, but listen to this. The Premier says the state's ongoing COVID crisis has become a national emergency. New South Wales recording the highest number of new cases in this outbreak, 136 in a single day. 53 of those were active in the community while infectious with the death of an 89-year-old man, the sixth fatality linked to the outbreak. Gladys Berejiklian conceded the only way to gain control of the Delta strain is to have as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. The Chief Health Officer also making an emotional plea. In the context of the Delta threat, I just can't understand why people would not be taking the opportunity to go out and get AstraZeneca in droves. Keep a, a number of restrictions in place for the next few months, whether that's a full lockdown or whether it's just restrictions in place for the next few months until we can get properly vaccinated. Now, at the moment, we've got plenty of AstraZeneca. We just don't have enough Pfizer, and Pfizer is the one that everybody wants. Now, that is why the Premier today has gone to National Cabinet to essentially plead to all the state and territory leaders to please send Sydney some Pfizer, because right now, if Sydney fails, Australia fails. That's why we're really saying to our community, we will proceed responsibly to open up once we get to 70% double dose of the adult population. And we ask everybody to come with us on this journey. I don't want anyone to be concerned that when we get to 70% double dose, uh, that we're going to do anything which isn't based on sound health advice, but also appreciates uh, our aim to live with COVID in a safe way. You just like the spray teams there yes. spraying the house and everything like that. So, so it's 70% double dose. This is what uh, uh, Gladys uh, Baron Killian uh, is, is saying there. I hope I pronounced that right. From New South Wales. She's the head of the state of New South Wales. That's where Sydney is and uh, other, a few other big cities. So 70% double dose and then you win your freedom back, yeah. uh, says the government. This is pretty much the same scenario uh, in Victoria State as well. Just look at some of the shenanigans going on. Here, Mike, police shut down public transport in Melbourne uh, to prevent an anti-lockdown rally. So law enforcement got wind of a protest, so they shut down public transport. I mean, the level of authoritarianism, when you have a government doing this, uh, it's, it's really a whole new ballgame right yeah. now. I mean, they're just hitting all of these uh, incredible uh, new highlights uh, in, the, in the road to totalitarianism. Uh, look at this as well. This is interesting. Queensland, uh, you will receive a police visit if they if if they miss home quarantine texts by ten minutes to response. So the police are sending out these texts to make sure you're at home. If you don't respond, uh, you could get get a visit by the Australian police. I mean, you can't get any more sort of crazy than what's going on here. Look at this. Queenslanders and home. Quarantine will need to answer a randomly timed text message within 10 minutes or risk a visit by the cops. 
as part of the new compliance laws announced this morning. So these are, these are called real-time compliance rules pushed by the state government ahead of the school holidays uh, that start next week. So they're trying to basically control the movement of people during the school breaks, uh, basically, because we don't want people running around and doing anything uh, in public. So stay at home, stay at home, stay at home. So let's look at look at this. Now, you've seen the guerrilla activism in places like London where they're putting stickers out. In, in This is in Melbourne. The government are doing guerrilla marketing on lampposts. Look at this. COVID-19 vaccines are safe and effective. The vaccines were developed because science, scientists could access the funding very quickly and so forth. I mean, they're, they're putting vaccine propaganda out. So we're going to call this state guerrilla marketing. Uh, that's the only way we can sort of describe this. But look at this. It, it gets even better. This is an overpass electronic billboard here. How to stop your pet from getting COVID. This is uh, Seven News, I believe, uh, in Australia. I mean, this is total madness. I mean, they really just fallen off the cliff, basically, uh, down under. I mean, the stuff that's going on there is crazy between the government and the media. And we'll explain the reason why this is happening, because what is this relationship between the government and the media during the pandemic? We've covered some of this in the past. We'll look at some of that in a minute. But here's the big story that we're going to highlight today. So the TGA, this is the Therapeutic Goods Association. I suppose this is like the FDA equivalent uh, in Australia. They're threatening a member of parliament, Craig Kelly, with legal action over a tweet which he put out, okay? This was a tweet that was approved by his party where he was basically uh, republishing parts of the TGA's own report on adverse reactions of vaccines. So and, and so in response, they're gonna threaten legal action uh, against him. So Clive Palmer, who's the, the chairman uh, of this particular party here, this United Australia Party, he held a press conference and drop some bombshells. There's Craig Kelly right there. I mean, follow Craig Kelly on Twitter and you'll see the information he's putting out is absolutely amazing on a day-to-day -day basis. He is the lone voice in Australia, aside from Clive Palmer and, a few, and one other, I believe, that are basically having the courage to tell the truth to the public and to their electorate about uh, lockdowns, about the sort of bogus science that the government's pushing, mm. uh, about vaccine safety and about what's the relationship between these pharmaceutical companies and the sort of political leaders in that country. So, so Clive Palmer held this press conference, Mike, and I kid you not, he dropped some major bombshells, okay? The first one is big, but the second one is bigger. Listen to this one here, and then we'll, we'll explain uh, the, the gravity of this in a second. You know, if there are serious side effects by these vaccines, um, and I would point out these are reports to the TGA by physicians and others about deaths that have taken place following the receipt of the vaccines. And that's all they are, and that's all the, all the report says. But people are entitled to know what the truth is, because the media won't tell them. And the media has been threatened with the loss of their advertising contracts. John Skerritt wrote to a... I think we put some ads on one of the local radio stations you saw a few weeks back. He wrote a letter to them telling them that the TGA would, wouldn't do it, and then immediately gave them a very lucrative advertising contract so that we couldn't get any airtime. And, you know, it's unprecedented in this country where you get the government uh, saying that they will threaten the freedom of the press, the rights of people to know, by withholding government money for their advertising. And you get media owners who may need that money, instructing their journalists that they can't run articles 
they can't be critical of the government, that there isn't any fair reporting anymore in this country. So uh, what do you do? Um, Craig Kelly, as an elected member of the people, has sent a tweet enclosing nothing more, no comments, but our government report so people can have informed consent. I don't see anything wrong with that. I think it's very commendable and I'll be certainly supporting Mr Kelly with all my resources, for sure, to, to defend his right to uh, freedom of speech and the rights of all Australians to make an informed choice. Yeah, but the problem is, Patrick, we're not entitled to freedom of speech anymore because there's been, a, we mentioned on Wednesday program, a poll in the UK that says uh, that your right to, to being protected by the state overrides your right to, to freedom of speech. Right, right. So, well, in, in this case, the government has clearly bought off mm. all of the major media outlets. And this isn't just happening in Australia. Let's just take a look at a few other stories that have emerged here. Look at this. This is out of Canada. This is from uh, Canada Land. Uh, which media benefited from the Trudeau government's COVID-19 funds. So Heritage Ministry added over $30 million in recovery funding to undisclosed media recipients. This is basically buying headlines, front pages, advertorials, basically government propaganda. And all the mainstream media outlets are taking this money, mm -hmm. as we've seen in the UK as well. Uh, and so are they going to be critical of government when government is their main source of revenue? I don't think so. And this is exactly what Clive Palmer was exposing. Right. This is happening in Australia as well. And just to review here, just so you don't forget, this was the Telegraph uh, in 2020. Government struck a 119 million pound COVID advertising deal weeks before the first lockdown. This was in the UK. Okay, This was mainstream news, although it didn't get a lot of coverage on the sort of broadcast media. So the cabinet office signed a lucrative contract with London-based OMD Group, I uh, believe they're a media broker, media buyer, uh, as the government began to gear up its response to the crisis, which we were told, oh, they didn't know what they were going to do until the last second. Well, no, they put down over 100 million pounds to, to basically secure their, average, their, their space in the media. And uh, we've got to keep in mind that that 190 million pounds is part of a total of 1.6 billion pounds that they're spending on advertising on, and media PR work over the next couple of years. So, yeah. you know, the budgets are not small. No, no. And this was early on here. This was another story from way back, which we covered on the UK column. The government advertising tops quarter of a billion pounds in 2020. That was from March of 2021. And this look at the sort of propaganda they were pushing with this money. Look him in the eyes and tell him always keep a safe distance and all this sort of scare propaganda that the government is doing to terrorize uh, the public. So that's what's going on on the media side. Now, this is where it gets really juicy, okay? Gladys, the premier of New South Wales, well, it seems that she's involved quite deeply uh, in a scandal of her own. And how is this affecting her position or her pushing this uh, zero COVID double jab policy? There is a connection. Clive Palmer has gone on record to basically say what that is. And let me tell you, it is absolutely shocking. Let's listen to the second part of the press conference. 
I would say it's terrible. Their premier is telling them that the only way out is a double jab, and that's what they've been told. Yeah, I'd say their premier is lying to them. I'd say that she's under an IPAC inquiry, that a particular lobbyist in Sydney controls the Liberal Party in Sydney and has told her that the only way she gets out of that inquiry is if she pushes the double jab, and his clients are AstraZeneca, and his clients are yeah, Pfizer. That, that's what I'd say. Clients. I'd say that what the premier is telling them is not true, and that that policy should they shouldn't be locked down. Businesses should be open. And the, and the government's using this as an excuse to destroy them. And that's, they know that. Do you, that, think that's, they, 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 do you think that the Premier of New South Wales wants to destroy business? I do. And, and why, why would she do that? Because it's her economy. Because, she, as I tried to explain to you, that she's being directed by a lobbyist in Sydney who's being paid by AstraZeneca and by Pfizer tens of millions of dollars to get these policies through to make sure the vaccine is, is pushed. That's why. You asked the question? I gave you the answer. And that's my personal knowledge. And I'm happy to make a statement here to police or to anyone if they want to know what's going on. Pretty strong stuff. Yes. And he yes. said at the end, I'm willing to go to the police to make this statement. Mm. So it, absolute, guess how the mainstream media in Australia reacted to this? Uh, I'm sure they <laughs> tore strips off him. No, absolute silence. Oh. For the most part, literally, omerta. Nobody wants to talk about it. So they're going to leave United Australia, Clive Palmer, Craig Kelly to shout about this from social media and their press conferences, but they won't actually pick this story up. So Gladys is, uh, she's got a few problems here. Let's just take a look. Here she is, zero COVID, Virgin Killian, Premier of New South Wales. And so here is her a former, we're told, partner or boyfriend, his name's Daryl Maguire, and he was after a grant uh, for, I believe, the Clay Target Association or something in Australia for develop a property development deal uh, after a government grant uh, that was helped along by Gladys herself. So she's being investigated for this uh, conflict of interest corruption scandal, and it seems that uh, there's leaning going on on her by lobbyists from AstraZeneca and Pfizer to push this double drab zero COVID policy. So uh, there, there is some activity going on behind the scenes apparently here. There's definitely a scandal. Um, she's not happy talking about this in public, Mike. So uh, it's it, very interesting. So I think in all countries, whether it's the UK, whether it's Australia, whether it's Canada, whether it's the United States, there are forces that are uh, above and behind government putting pressure on individual politicians who are compromised, okay, probably the most compromised politician in United States history mm. is sitting in the presidency right now with more sort of uh, potential criminal probes, scandals, just rank corruption, uh, really through his whole career, but in recent years, especially with the Ukraine, Joe Biden. So it's no surprise that Joe Biden is running hell for leather. He might have been told similar things. Yes. That uh, the only way to make the Hunter Biden scandal go away or what you did in the Ukraine or how much money you profited from China or Ukrainian side deals is to push this double jab, zero COVID policy. Mm. So, I mean, that's not out of the realms of, of possibility there. So I think this is, uh, this is extremely interesting. So now we're beginning to see where some of the pressure uh, points are that are happening from behind the scenes, and certainly Big Pharma is playing a big role in that. Yes, uh, and of course, one of the things that Big Pharma definitely does not want to see is uh, ivermectin uh, making any kind of progress uh, as a prophylactic or a treatment for COVID nineteen. Uh, and so, the BBC uh, 
not sure what inspired them to do this, but they have uh, put Ross Atkins, one of their uh, uh, reporters, onto this. Why are people using a horse drug is what they were asking uh, yesterday. Um, and uh, they have a, a, a sort of 10 minute uh, video clip, which I'm not gonna force down anybody's uh, throats today, but uh, here is Ross Atkins. Uh, in the US, he began by saying a drug called ivermectin is being touted as a way of treating COVID-19. And of course, they make a huge deal about uh, the fact that it's uh, many people are taking uh, ivermectin in a dosage which is being uh, packaged up for horses and other animals, uh, and that this is problematic. Uh, he does admit uh, halfway through this particular piece um, that a huge number of doctors in the United States are giving prescriptions for ivermectin, so there is prescription ivermectin going out. Uh, at no point in this video does he talk about the French trials uh, and the successes in France. Uh, and there's been using, US trials as well. Right. Um, uh, but uh, so why is this being uh, pushed through the BBC right at this moment? Well, I'm just going to suggest that it's related to the ongoing ivermectin investigation uh, by the, uh, at least inspired by the British government, but it's called the principal trial. Um, and uh, uh, if we, if you remember uh, when this was launched, uh, this was uh, what was said by Professor Chris Butler from Oxford University. Ivermectin is readily available globally, has been in wide use for many other infectious conditions. So it's a well-known medicine with a good safety profile. For people. Yes. Humans, it's not a horse drug exclusively. No. It's used it, as an antiparasitic for, for uh, equest, uh, equine uh, uh, husbandry and so forth. But the, the, it, it's been used with humans for a number of conditions for years. Yes. So it's very disingenuous for this BBC reporter to call it a horse drug. Uh, totally. It was a total piece of, piece of propaganda. But anyway, he, uh, Chris Butler went on to say, and because of the early promising results in some studies not mentioned in the BBC coverage, it's already being widely used to treat COVID-19 in several countries. Uh, by including ivermectin in a large-scale trial-like principle, we hope to generate robust evidence to determine how effective the treatment is against COVID-19 and whether there are benefits or harms associated with its use. Um, so, uh, uh, but we've got to remember, uh, well, first of all, um, here is uh, uh, Chris Whitty's paper on ivermectin. So I just want to remind everybody that, of course, the chief scientific officer is, or chief medical officer, sorry, is uh, certainly familiar with the drug because he uh, uh, worked on it and uh, produced a paper as a result of it. Uh, I'll just uh, blow the the uh, uh, attribution up so that you can see that Chris Whitty was involved in that trial. Um, but of course, we've got to remember that we've the UK has run other trials on um prophylactics and treatments for uh, COVID-19, not least hydroxychloroquine. Um, and here's Reuters here, UK halts trial of hydroxychloroquine as useless for COVID-19 patients. And the problem with this trial was uh, that they basically overdosed, massively overdosed the recipients of the drug. Uh, and many people asked the question, was that done deliberately in order to discredit the drug? If you want to get more background on the hydroxychloroquine scandal, then do look for that on the UK Column website. Ian Davis wrote a fantastic article on this, which goes through the, the, the timeline of what happened over the uh, hydroxychloroquine trials in the UK. Is that what's going to happen with ivermectin? Are the BBC preempting that by uh, pushing that disgraceful piece of uh, what they described as journalism? Uh, I'd suggest there is a connection there. And the uh, the 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 overdosing uh, trial for 
hydroxychloroquine. That was a basis for a, a paper which was published by The Lancet, Yes, uh, which was put out, went global, all the mainstream media jumped on it, and then they quietly retracted it because it was a fraudulent uh, a paper. Basically, the study was absolutely fraudulent and designed to demonize hydroxychloroquine. I'm going to say this about the ivermectin. There's two reasons why they're jumping on ivermectin right now really hard uh, on the mainstream media. One is because Joe Rogan, who's a popular podcaster and celebrity in the United States, he supposedly contracted COVID and took ivermectin and found it to be helpful and so forth, and he's recovered from COVID. So they went into absolute damage control, full court press. I mean, horse drug this, that he's doing skits, jokes about Joe Rogan being a horse and so forth. So they went crazy because they didn't want that sort of really impressionable demographic especially, which are males between uh, 18 and, you know, 35, or yep. the people who really follow Joe, people like Joe Rogan, they didn't want them to get in their head that there's treatments available uh, for, for COVID, okay? So, the, and the problem is, if there are treatments available, whether they be ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, that basically destroys the emergency use authorization uh, gimmick that governments have been using to push untested and unproven experimental injections or vaccines out into the public and flood the global market because there's no other treatments available, no at-home treatments, no early treatments for, for COVID-19. So with treatments, then you don't need to say that the world needs to be vaccinated and hit, hit Bill Gates's target of uh, uh, eight, seven and a half billion people or whatever his target is, which he has then ordered uh, all of these other uh, governments to sort of try and meet as well with the pharmaceutical industry. So no treatments, only vaccines. Mm. If you have lots of different treatments and different treatment protocols, which a lot of doctors have been trying to raise the alarm on and talk about, then obviously it kills the case for universal jabs, okay? So it kills the Microsoft business model, which the pharmaceutical companies are trying to push on the global population where you need updates for viruses every uh, every week or every month or every six months or whatever. That's the Microsoft business model now has, has taken over the, uh, the the pharmaceutical space. Indeed. Um, well, let's stick with the BBC then. And uh, well, the question is, why is the Pope puzzled? Well, here he is. This is a, the, the Pope is very problematic, uh, increasingly so here. So the Pope is puzzled. This Pope Francis, the Pontiff is weighing in He's on the Pope private airliner there. I think it's a Boeing or something. And he's puzzled about vaccine hesitancy within the church. Some of the cardinals don't want to get the jab, Mike, you see. So this is a bit of a problem. Uh, so Pope Francis doesn't understand why this is the case. Let's listen to what he says here. So apparently uh, it's a bit strange because humanity is, has a history of friendship with vaccines, says the pontiff friendship with vaccines. So what is this? Hum humanity has a history. Uh, can you befriend a vaccine? Is that possible? I mean, I sort of understand what he means here, but you know, looking at this Pope, this is the deal here. Pope Francis is uh, very much along the sort of communist uh, line of politics and thinking. Uh, he's pushing climate change really hard. So basically any sort of globalist policy you'll find this Pope is behind it, basically. Mm. So a little Che Guevara motif there uh, for the pontiff here. But look at this propaganda. 
Uh, this is from the Washington Post. I mean, this is just unbelievable. Parenting a child under under 12 in the age of Delta. So we're now in the, it's no longer COVID, it's Delta. And it's, it's like a fire alarm every day, says this parent. So routine outings have become tricky decisions for the youngest Americans who are still ineligible for the coronavirus vaccine. So mind you, that was the, this was the headline that the Washington Post originally had on their email blast, which is what it's like to parent a kid who's too young for a COVID vaccine. So what's the obvious uh, object of this propaganda story here with the Washington Post? We'll create demands for ever younger children to be vaccinated, of course. Absolutely. Create the pressure from the public to demand to vaccinate these young kids who are at zero risk, zero risk of ever getting ill from COVID-19. So let's look at this. With a vaccine for children age 5 to 11, unlikely to be approved for at least the next few more months, parents of young children are weighing a dizzying array of variables every day as they try to navigate the risks of COVID against the mental health and physical consequences and social isolation and their own livelihood. I mean, who writes this stuff is just unbelievable uh, pharmaceutical propaganda. So they're hitting people from all different directions, Mike, yeah. uh, on this. And we're seeing uh, now in the UK as well, they're not happy just to get the 15 to 16 year olds jab to override the, J, uh, the, the, the JCVI. The JCVI, no, yeah. no, no. They wanna go for the youngest kids. They wanna have it. two year olds, who knows? Get, their, get your firstborn jabbed uh, as soon as they sort of come out of the womb. So, and here's the CDC. I mean, they've been caught here. We're calling this administrative fraud in the 21st century wire. The CDC now lists vaccine deaths as unvaccinated. And you're looking at that and saying, how is that possible? How could the CDC be doing that? Let's take a closer look here. The CDC director, uh, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, uh, claimed that over 97% of the people who are entering the hospital right now are unvaccinated. Is that true? Actually, no. As it turns out, the CDC was looking at hospitalization and mortality data from January through June 2021, a time frame during which the vast majority of the U.S. population was still unvaccinated. So again, that's statistical fraud uh, by the CDC director herself. And then the media picks that up and it becomes headlines. And then Joe Biden's repeating it. Jen Psaki's repeating it. Half of America Democrats are repeating it that... Uh, Everyone who's dying who's sick is unvaccinated. Not true. Factually untrue. So the CDC is playing with statistics to create the false impression that unvaccinated people make up the bulk of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. The agency is counting anyone who died within the first 14 days post-injection as being unvaccinated. How is that possible? They're, 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 well, if, because they're claiming they are claiming that the vaccine doesn't start working within the first 14 days. So you're effectively unvaccinated within that period. Um, it's interesting that the CDC is doing that because uh, on Monday, I think it was, we covered Office for National Statistics data on this, a, a, a release from them. And they were doing exactly the same thing. They were showing a, a different time period for uh, for the graph where they were trying to show that it was mainly unvaccinated people that were dying, um, and, and then a different time period for, for deaths overall. So, so they weren't showing like-for-like like data. So this seems to be a common trend. Not only that, so if, if you've had one dose, then you're counted as unvaccinated mm -hmm. by the CDC. But there's more to this, 
There's more to this than that. So that, so that means the deaths after one jab are being counted as, quote, unvaccinated, rather than being linked to receiving the vaccine. Right. So a, a potential adverse reaction or a death completely paved over and covered up and literally put in the unvaccinated column. I mean, yeah, this is it's worse than that. Patrick, it's administrative it? fraud. Because, yes, it is. But we have highlighted many times in this program that the 14 days post, in fact, 21 days post vaccination, you're at extremely at risk during that period of time because your immune system is effectively collapsed to nothing during that time. So you're immunocompromised. Absolutely. Because of the vaccine. vaccine which is supposed to strengthen your immune system. So it, it, the, their narrative does not add up when you apply factual analysis and actual science. So the media, the CDC, and all these agencies are basically effectively running cover for a very dodgy pharmaceutical industry. Sadly, the government is in bed with that industry. Hmm. Sad to say, but this is what it looks like. So let's just take a look at uh, what else is being pumped out here. Look at this. This is... The Washington Post, I'm sure many people will love this one. Uh, so the pandemic marks another grim milestone. One in 500 Americans have died of COVID-19. Is that actually true? There's the key word here, Mike. Died of COVID-19. Have they died of or died with or PCR positive tested? Here's the obligatory photograph of someone lo loading a dead body into the back of some vehicle. Uh, so, and here's the little graphic that they throw up here. Look at this. They did a little sort of <laughs> blot graph here. This is what one in 500 Americans looks like on a graph dot chart here. Have died of, from, from COVID. Is that, so is that true? Is that actually true? Well, look, there's a number of different papers, articles that you can go to that show that they have totally exaggerated uh, the number of deaths they're attributing to COVID-19. Uh, Here's just one of those here. Uh, this was published in October 2020. COVID-19 data collection, comorbidities, federal law, a historical perspective. They also rewrote uh, how, how they can keep and log these types of records and attribute death in this way, which normally has to go through a very heavy vetting process with the federal government and the various uh, agencies of statistics, but was all bypassed under the sort of crisis emergency protocol here. But take a look at this. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention on August 23rd, 2020, only for 6% of the deaths, COVID-19 was the only cause mentioned. So this is only 6% of how many, how many in America? 100, 500, a million, I don't know what the number is now, 800,000. Only, only about 6% uh, have no other comorbidities. So those are the only ones that you could, you could really say from a medical point of view for absolutely certain those are deaths from COVID-19. The rest are deaths with COVID-19. Anybody who was PCR positive tested in their 80s uh, while they're dying of four or five different other conditions, to call that and put that in the COVID death category is absolute fraud. And this is just being done on a regular basis, not just in the United States, but in a number of countries. Why? They want to drive the fear up, drive the, 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 the doom numbers up to justify all of these draconian policies and to ram home their jab policies. I mean, that's 
basically what we've had from day one. Well, indeed it is. And we've been giving example after example of this for well over a year now. And yeah. they're still they're still pulling this gag, and nobody in the mainstream media is uh, is questioning it at all. No, in fact, they're going with the gag, as we just showed you with the Washington Post. One in five hundred Americans have died from COVID nineteen. What an absolute lie! And that's the Washington Post. That's the paper of record, the number one newspaper in the United States. That's the sort of garbage they're pushing out here. So back to Joe Biden, Mike, and uh, here's Broadway Joe. He's got a little bit of a situation. Uh, the Arizona Attorney General is suing the federal government, Biden administration, over the authoritarian vaccine mandates in their state here. And let's just look at what uh, uh, Paul, uh, he's tweeted here. Uh, this is, yeah, uh, Mark Brnovich. He is the Attorney General of Arizona. I promised Arizonans that we would stand for the Biden, stand against, no, oh, sorry, that we would not stand for the Biden administration's egregious federal overreach on vaccine mandates. Today, we have filed the first lawsuit in the nation against the unconstitutional mandates. Arizona will not tolerate this assault on our sovereignty. So basically, he's quoting the Equal Protection Clause vis-a-vis -vis the federal government's not requiring uh, immigrants coming over the southern border uh, to be vaccinated. So he's saying then no Americans should be required to be vaccinated and violations of multiple U.S. Uh, constitutional amendments, including the first, the ninth, the tenth, and probably a few others mm -hmm. as well. This, this case will go, very likely will go to the Supreme Court. This will be ruled. And you know, this will be the first time. Uh, the COVID policies have never been challenged in the high courts, almost in no countries. Mm -hmm. We're under this sort of emergency legislation. And so this will be one of the first times, because of the federal government putting its thumb down, on the states and the people, that's gonna trigger the legal process coming back up to the federal government. So there'll be, so all, all of these uh, executive and draconian policies will be challenged eventually. This will be the first one, which is Biden telling states that all businesses with more than 100 employees, all federal employees, et cetera, et cetera, need to, be, uh, need to, need to take an experimental corporate uh, cocktail right. uh, injection, basically. That's being challenged. And if that goes to the Supreme Court, I really don't see how the Supreme Court can rule against multiple uh, constitutional amendments. I really don't see how that's possible. Anything's possible these days, but it's very likely if that goes to the Supreme Court, that's going to be a major, major thing. Okay. Okay, let's uh, move on then to travel restrictions because the UK government is announced or is announcing today uh, changes to travel restrictions. That shows an aircraft flying into a U.S. city there, Patrick. Uh, I think it's a U.S. city anyway. But uh, the point is, uh, we're still not allowed to go to the United States yet. Yeah, so Biden's still got uh, travel bans on Europeans, and even though uh, Europeans allowing Americans in, even yes. Britain as well. So this is creating a bit of friction uh, uh, over the Atlantic with this. I mean, the Biden administration are absolutely potty with all of these policies. They don't really know whether they're coming or going. I think this is obviously to... To, to ramp up the agenda, which is basically everything that comes back to vaccines yes. at the end of the day. So they would like to, to get the vaccine passport implemented. Eventually, they're going to try and by hook or crook, but yeah. Absolutely. So let's have a look at what the uh, UK is announcing today. Uh, first of all, uh, the traffic lights are dropped. Um, so we're only going to have go and no go from now on, uh, whether you're allowed to go or not go. Uh, so amber list countries, therefore, become go countries. Uh, so that's uh, good news, isn't it? 
double jabbed people will no longer need a PCR test when they're traveling. Um, and uh, well, pre-departure PCR tests are going to be scrapped probably. Uh, that's not absolutely confirmed yet unless they're making the announcement right now. Uh, and uh, But unvaccinated people will be required to uh, quarantine on return to the country. So uh, you will not be allowed back into the country without quarantine if you're unvaccinated. Uh, and uh, hotel quarantine stays for no-go countries, even if you're double jabbed, um, is what they're saying. So that's, uh, that's the latest uh, on that. Uh, apparently, we will find out that will be confirmed later on, apparently, but that's, uh, that is what they're talking about. So as you say, the focus is uh, on vaccination 100%, because anybody that's unvaccinated basically being told uh, they must quarantine and continue forever to quarantine. Yeah, you're a leper. You're a leper, you're a pariah if you're not, uh, you haven't taken the jab. Uh, even though, even though the jab doesn't uh, stop you from getting it, stop you from spreading it. So what's the point? Uh, indeed, good question. Now, uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated. Also do share our material that you find on the various platforms. Uh, and I just want to let everybody know that we have uh, put the uh, the Christmas uh, vouchers uh, for membership back on the website because, uh, well, it's we're halfway through past halfway point of September, so everybody's thinking about Christmas at the moment, aren't they? Uh, but if you are thinking about Christmas, you'd like to give a UK column membership as a gift, uh, then those are available on the UK column shop uh, now. Um, okay, so where does that take us? Energy, Patrick. Energy. So uh, if you've been paying attention, well, paying attention to your energy bills, I think you should uh, in the coming months, depending on what tariffs you're on. But there's a bit of an energy price shock going, Mike, here. We're going to talk about what's happening in the EU uh, in Britain. This potentially is going to affect everybody uh, in the country. So especially people who are working class, middle class, they're going to be affected the most. The upper class, well, they don't care too much. This is just a minor uh, expense. So what is going on? What's driving this here? Well, a quick look here. So Europe is facing an energy price shock. Gas and power are hitting record highs right now. So what's causing this here? So gas and electric price shock. This is what's happened. Record price highs in Germany, Netherlands, France, the UK, Italy, number of other countries here. I mean, these numbers here might could be out of date because I got them from uh, the last 48 hours, but a high of $93 per megawatt hour, that's 79 euros. So this is shattering all records uh, with regards to your sort of dual bill for uh, electric uh, and gas here. Uh, so Netherlands, mar one market, energy market, up 450% over the last 12 months. That's huge. And so dual gas electric bills up 20% for consumers. That's potentially going to hit uh, the UK uh, as well, Italy, 40% retail hike predicted for the next quarter here. So let's just take a look at uh, what else might be uh, driving this. Uh, so let's look at, look at what's causing the energy inflation. That's the big question, uh, Mike, here. So we have a number of official theories, call them conspiracy theories, if you will. But uh, this is what they're saying. There's an increased demand as economies open up. That's a bit disingenuous because, you know, industry's been running, cities are uh, running, you know, so buildings still have lights on and using power and so forth uh, for the most part. So I don't buy this. Do you buy that no, one? No, no, not at all. So, that, But that's using COVID 
as an excuse or trying to wrap this into the COVID narrative, which governments and the media love to do, of course. So look at this, uncertainty uh, in the markets, uncertainty in the markets. What kind of uncertainty? Where is it coming from? Is there any explanation? Well, I guess they're shocked that winter is coming after autumn, Mike, that it's going to get cold in the winter. That's uh, an uncertainty. I guess we just can't predict the weather anymore going forward into the season. So if there is any uncertainty in the markets, Mike, who would be responsible for that uncertainty? Take a wild guess. Who would be the one culprit? Media? Well, the government. Government injecting various new policies and regulations. That would create more uncertainty in the market. So they want to blame it on the weather. So Asia is buying up all the LNG. That's liquefied natural gas supplies. And that's driving up the prices. This is what they're saying in Bloomberg. This is what they're saying at CNBC. So that uh, blame it on the Chinese and, yes. the, and the Japanese. It's their fault. Okay, so here's another one. I love this. The weather. The weather. This is because of the weather. There's not enough wind for the turbines, Mike. Do you buy that one? Uh, well, that has certainly been the case this, that for a lot of this year. We have seen very settled weather over Europe, and the turbines have not been turning. And so we've had to see coal-fired uh, power stations switch back on again. Um, so they can blame the weather. Uh, but if that's pushing prices up, uh, well, by, by by two, three, four hundred percent. I don't, I don't think so. No. I don't think so. We'll give them partial credit, though. There is a little bit of weather uh, involved in this. But but really, what's the subtext of that last one is that the green energy is a total flop. Correct. Basically. So and that that brings us to uh, this: the UK delay in getting nuclear power plants online. So is this a legitimate excuse for massive? upsurge in European and, and, and UK energy markets, Mike? No, I'm not buying any of this. And in fact, uh, if you look at the uh, demand, uh, if you look at the uh, generating capacity in the UK over the last 10 years, it has been steadily falling over that 10 year period. Um, so it's not a case that there's a delay in getting nuclear power plants online. It's more of a case that coal fire power stations are switched off mm -hmm. and anything which is viewed as being uh, ungreen uh, is being switched off. So it's being switched off faster than uh, the other uh, replacements can be coming online. That, uh, that's a big driver of, of the, uh, the, the, the shock in the energy market. Yes, it is. Now, on, on Monday, uh, we, mentioned, uh, we mentioned this, uh, and it was just a one-off uh, thing because uh, it had been tweeted out, UK day ahead base load uh, electricity prices jumped to a fresh all-time high of £354 per megawatt hour uh, on the, uh, and the intraday prices were even higher than that. So the intraday prices uh, went through the roof, but that was 700% higher than the £45 average. Uh, and just to, to zoom in on that a little bit, so, so you know, that was what uh, uh, we reported on Monday. But by Wednesday, um, the BBC was reporting this, uh, UK power prices soar after cable hit by blaze, but they were talking about the prices on Wednesday and they made no comment about the prices on Monday. Uh, and in fact, the BBC has completely changed the headline of this article already, which is why we're using the, the Wayback Machine but, but to this, show this. But this headline is designed to, to make the reader think that the power price soar is, is because of a cable that caught fire, right? Well, it, exa that's exactly right. And so they didn't talk about the, the, the price spike on Monday and they haven't explained that. They're talking about a single event on Wednesday and the, and the potential cause of that, which is a, an infrastructure problem, okay, but it doesn't, they're not dealing with uh, the, the underlying problem, which you're uh, talking about is much broader 
than just one particular event. Sure. I mean, what, what are we really looking at here? We're looking at the Great Reset, Mike. This, this is the chaos that is, 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 uh, is coming through with the sort of the Great Reset. It's being done by, through a number of factors, but the, the result is very clear. Let's take a look at this. What's causing the energy inflation? Well, these are what, what I think, what we think are likely causes here. Price speculators are profiteering. There is no doubt about that. The futures markets are absolutely uh, exploding. And, you know, market traders, when you liberalize the energy markets, free-floating as they did from Enron to, to, till now, right. this is why we have this. This is why your bills are five times more than they were in 1995, okay? It's not because of natural market forces. This is because they have created energy markets that didn't exist before that allow for massive speculation. Of course, you'll never have the BBC ever lifting a finger on that one. And here, the failure of green energy. And guess what? Wow, gas is in short supply, Mike. So guess what's up 70%? Coal. Coal's up 70%. What does that mean? It means that carbon, carbon permits are driving up the cost of fossil fuels. So when coal is up 70%, obviously you need carbon permits for the polluting. So the carbon markets are, are doing really well right now in this particular crisis, okay? Great reset, great reset, Green New Deal. So in government-led disruptions, labor shortages. Now last year, remember, they couldn't get the staff, some plants were down because of the pandemic. You remember all that, mm -hmm. COVID-19? So again, COVID policies, crazy COVID policies uh, with the, the pandemic were ca causing labor disruptions. Not only that, just people testing positive, whatever, staying home, et cetera. So that's, again, government-led. This is a government-led disruption. So look at this, carbon permits, that's government. Government disruptions, COVID policies, that's government. Green policies, that's government too. And the EU delaying the approval of the Nord Stream pipeline. So there is affordable natural gas that can come into Europe, Mike. But it comes from a source we don't want to really trade with. It's coming from Russia. That's a big problem. So we are paying, consumers in Europe and the UK are paying the price for the geopolitical chess match that's, that's going on between UK and the US and Russia and also Europe as well. Less so with Europe. I don't think they have that big of an adversarial uh, uh, ambition that is the UK and, and the US do with regards uh, to Russia. So let's look at that Nord Stream uh, 2 project here. Um, so what is the Nord Stream 2? What can the Nord Stream 2, this is a German and Russian joint venture, what can this do for Europe right now, today? This can deliver 55 billion cubic meters per year to the European market. That's just for starters. Of, of liquefied natural gas. No, yeah, natural gas. Not, not, right, natural, not, not liquefied. Right. Much cheaper, much more affordable than LNG. Right. The US is wanting to ship. The US basically tried to sandbox this project and then ship US fracked LNG mm. into, into Europe, uh, having Germany pay double the price for it, okay, and then trying to give them favors for something else mm. to compensate for. The, the high prices. I mean, these are the games that are going on just to keep this gas from getting into Europe. Here, look at this. This will supply immediately 26 million family homes in Europe, immediately, okay? So again, and affordable at a price much lower than what's available. Now, what could else this do? The, the Nord Stream 2, when it comes online, this would stabilize the spot price immediately on the gas market. 
They have a huge amount of supply coming in, affordable, that's going to help to balance out the markets and normalize the markets, okay? That's just a fact. But who's, who's really going to be upset about all this, Mike? Well, this is the sort of thing that Greta is much, much unhappy about, okay? So she represents the Great Reset. She is Klaus Schwab's uh, little attack dog, okay? So she's going to go around and get involved in this geopolitical game. So now we can see, now we can see what's really happening with this energy shock, okay? This didn't have to happen. It's happening because of the, the green energy policies, the agendas coming out of Davos, okay? The Mark Carneys of the world uh, and the Klaus Schwab's of the world and all of these other environmental activists here. So they're pushing this and the US is happy because they do not want Russia to have any influence or any partnership economically with countries like Germany, with uh, main, main, mainland Europe, because that's a problem. That means that there's less influence and less muscle that can be flexed by the United States to sell its weapons and all the rest of it, okay? Right. That's what's going on here. So they don't want this to happen. So the Europe is basically sandbagging right now. They're sitting on this. They don't want to approve this. It, how long is it gonna take for them to approve the Nord Stream? It's done. The pipeline's done, Mike. How long? It's not switched on. Six months, a year. They're gonna let Europeans suffer and pay over the odds and go basically into fuel poverty so that they can win their little geopolitical chess match, okay? So who are gonna be the deciders here? Here's Biden and Boris at the G7. Biden's saying here, hey, Bob, we can't let the, any Russian gas get into Europe. And then Boris is gonna reply, too right, more jabs and arms. So Boris is just on that repeat script, so he having trouble getting off the script or whatever, so he's still thinking about vaccines. Uh, for some reason here. So people are always saying, why don't you guys show us some solutions, right? Well, here's some solutions. This is the solutions that we're going to offer here. Drop the fake green energy policy and the fake carbon markets. These are creating all sorts of disruptions. These are uh, basically hurting the markets, making them unable to see price signals, okay? So maintain and manage a proportional basket of energy resources, this includes gas, oil, coal, nuclear, also wind, solar, and hydro. But those are at the, at the back of the list. The, the first ones are the only ones that can provide the base load required in the Northern Hemisphere for industrialized and developed countries, full stop, okay? So the, 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 what's happening, all these disruptions, Mike, all of these sort of uh, government-led uh, and sort of rigging the markets, these are uh, preventing the market from realizing the, the price signals, the, the natural price signals that help to regulate prices, okay? When you inject all the carbon permits, the carbon taxes, mm. all this sort of subsidized wind, then wind fails, solar fails in the winter, and then they have to fire up the coal, the coal's more expensive, here come the carbon uh, permits. This is a total disaster, and it will continue to be a disaster this year, next year, and the year after, okay? Meanwhile, they're pushing this climate change great reset agenda mm. at the same time. And what's happening? Who? What's the end result? The people are going bankrupt and the energy companies are making money hand over fist. You better believe they are. And that isn't going to get better uh, as the rollout of smart meters progresses because the energy, this is the energy company's wet dream. They want smart meters in 
people's homes, not only because they can then uh, get a, a massive data collection exercise going on what type of energy you're using, when are you using it, what is the demand, what's the supply. This would allow them to therefore tie your energy use to the market, to the market prices in real time. At the moment, we have this notion of the generating companies, which you might assume are wholesalers. And we've got the retail companies uh, that sell directly to you and I. And the retail companies are taking the risk on the, uh, the price, price fluctuations on the wholesale markets. They're taking the risk on that. They're charging uh, you a particular amount of money and they have to suck up these fluctuations in price. Once the smart meters go in, they can then start moving the risk onto us as consumers. And of course, this again is part of the Great Reset New Green Deal agenda because uh, the, we need to be con convinced to change our behaviors uh, to, to minimize the uh, energy use that we are uh, demanding and to, to only uh, you know, use energy at certain times of the day or only use certain types of energy and so on. So it is uh, the, the, the digitization of the energy markets is something that, uh, that that they are going to sell to people on the basis that, well, your energy prices are going to be cheaper <laughs> with a smart meter. No, maybe for the first six months, but wait to see what happens after no, the that. The opposite is true. This yes. system is designed so that they, they'll make you use less and you'll pay more per unit, basically. And so they'll they'll say, oh, well, we, we, we're doing all this great conservation. People are using less energy and our carbon footprint is reducing. So you're, you're going to be paying the same or more for less usage uh, as well. And by the way, th th this is how they're justifying this. They're saying, well, you know, the only the only way to bring the price of gas down is to create uh, a, a shock where people will just ha use less, you know, and then that will sort of increase the supply. And this is how they're talking right now. It's absolute craziness. But uh, at the end of the day, you pay. Absolutely, you pay. Uh, okay, well, um, we mentioned disinformation and misinformation earlier in the program. Let's come back onto that topic again uh, and remind everybody about NewsGuard. Uh, here they are. They're fighting misinformation with journalism, not al algorithms, they claim. And it's all about online safety for readers, brands, and democracies. And so they, they've got a pretty small idea of what it is they're attempting to achieve, but they want uh, online safety for us all. Uh, now, the last time we talked about NewsGuard, which is quite a time ago, uh, we put this graphic up. Now, of course, uh, anybody that's looking carefully will, uh, will be confused by the fact that the word true is beside the uh, red shield mm -hmm. and the word false is beside the green shield. Well, of course, uh, one of the things that NewsGuard do does is it assesses the trustworthiness of media outlets and gives them a red or green shield. But on the basis uh, that they generally give green shields to uh, people that are demonstrably untrustworthy, then we're going to put the green shield beside the false uh, uh, narrative here. Now, they don't only just talk about uh, media outlets, but they ran a, began a project some time ago on health in particular. Um, so here is uh, Anna-Sophie Harling, uh, who in uh, February said, uh, today we're excited to launch HealthGuard, a free tool to help you determine the credibility of website publishing information about COVID-19 and vaccines. Learn more at uh, health at newsguardtech.com slash vaxfacts. Um, so uh, that was what Anna Sophie was pushing out. And uh, well, this is Anna Sophie Harling. She went to Yale. Um, and uh, what did it say about her? Uh, Anna Sophie Harling is, uh, this is what NewsGuard says about her, is it Managing Director of Europe and Executive Vice President of Partnerships at NewsGuard based in London and New York. 
she was selected to serve as a member of the content board of Ofcom. Now, as we know, and we've been making the point many times, Ofcom is to be the new regulator of the internet under the online safety bill. So there's no conflict of interest here at all, Patrick, that somebody who is assessing the trustworthiness of COVID-19 information on the internet is also on the board of Ofcom, which would be responsible for regulating the internet. No conflict of interest. This NewsGuard is completely independent and there's no conflict of interest there at all. Uh, so this is the HealthGuard uh, part of NewsGuard. Protect yourself from misinformation about COVID-19 vaccines and more with HealthGuard. Uh, and who is uh, related to this? Let's have a look at the uh, uh, free HealthGuard access is made possible thanks to the generous support of our sponsors and partners. Uh, well, who do you see on there aside from Microsoft, the Knight Foundation, Mount Sinai, uh, Time? Time, uh, yeah, a number of... Uh media outlets, Mike, that uh, also are notorious uh, fronts for the intelligence agency. Time Magazine being like the most obvious there, uh, but uh, other these other brands, I mean, amazing. Uh, it's chapter and verse, basically the establishment. So that, that's the what you were talking about earlier with uh, we were, you know the, this this defense national security thing with fake news that we talked yes. about earlier. This feeds directly into that. You know who that they have running all of these different programs, all these very young, uh, recently, you know, graduate, graduated. graduated people who are in charge of this kind of, you know, fighting disinformation or anti-propaganda. What they're doing is basically narrative policing. Uh, 100%, and you'll see that in one second. Um, so, of course, uh, NewsGuard is not a free product normally, but uh, during the emergency, uh, apparently uh, the health guard is going to be free. How generous. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, so HealthGuard is free during the COVID-19 emergency, but NewsGuard, of course, call themselves the Internet Trust Tool. Um, and uh, let's have a look at who some more of their partners are here. Again, Microsoft, we've got BT, we've got uh, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense and the U.S. Department of State. Oof. There you go. Uh, and so on. So Vaz in, in the list there as well, yeah. University of Michigan uh, and so on. But uh, let me uh, uh, introduce you to another individual from NewsGuard. This is Bron, uh, Bron Maher. And uh, Bron wrote NewsGuard's assessment of the UK column uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and so we got a big red shield, of course, for anybody that uh, wants to go and look at what NewsGuard says about the UK column. And they had all kinds of complaints about us. He's a nice uh, young lad. But he is, uh, as you just uh, mentioned, Patrick, he is a, a graduate. Uh, and this is basically the first job, pro proper job that he's had since he graduated. Uh, from a U.S. university, can't remember off the top of my head, but North look at North Carolina or Duke or something. It was like Duke. That. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. It was Duke. Uh, so uh, look at how he describes himself on his Twitter page: uh, like a Buckingham Palace guard, but for opinions. Try and get me to show an opinion. You can't. Well, indeed, you can't see his opinions because his tweets are protected. He doesn't even have the guts to let the public see what he's tweeting about. Why don't they call it horse? They should call it horse guard then. If he's a Buckingham Palace. Guard, called yes. Horse Guard. Yes, indeed. Horse guard. Uh, so why am I mentioning Bron? Well, because Bron has been back in touch. Uh, he has sent us an email uh, in the last couple of days uh, uh, with a whole bunch more questions about the UK column. He's still gainfully employed. That's good. Uh, he is gainfully employed. And uh, so NewsGuard is going to update their assessment Oof. of the UK column, I understand. Um, so I just Oof. want to let everybody know that that's coming in case you want to look out for it. And maybe you want to get want to get in touch with Braun and uh, and see uh, what what he's really about. Yeah, uh, perhaps. Yeah. 
Okay, let's uh, move on then to the Financial Times uh, sort of related topic here, because Telegram, of course, uh, is, has been uh, highlighted over the last number of months as being uh, a platform of choice of people that are uh, organizing events to uh, protest against uh, lockdown or other things. Uh, but uh, the demonization of team Telegram is uh, continuing apace here with the Financial Times plus a, a, a cybersecurity company uh, producing the information that backs up this article. Uh, Telegram emerges as a new dark web for cyber criminals. So we've got to shut Telegram down straight away. I thought Signal was the dark web for cyber And So this week it's Telegram. Uh, this week it's Telegram. Okay. So uh, this was an investigation by cyber intelligence group CyberInt together with Financial Times. And they say that they have found a ballooning network of hackers sharing data leaks on the popular messaging platform, sometimes in channels with tens of thousands of subscribers, lured by its ease of use and light touch moderation. In many cases, the content resembled that of the marketplaces found on the dark web, a group of hidden websites that are popular amongst hackers and accessed uh, using specific uh, anonymizing software. Uh, we have been recently witnessing a 100% rise in Telegram use, usage by cyber uh, criminals, uh, said CyberInt. So uh, we've got to shut it down straight away or at least uh, bring it under the... Uh, the online harms legislation and make sure that it's uh, well regulated or make sure the Telegram puts some kind of backdoor in there so that uh, the UK intelligence agencies can easily uh, access uh, information uh, on there. Uh, that must be what we need to do. I think they're really upset because uh, Telegram doesn't deplatform people Yes. Uh, for basically posting uh, facts or anything like that, which is what Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram uh, and so forth do on a regular basis. So they really don't like the fact that uh, Telegram doesn't get involved uh, in uh, basically routing and policing information. Now, the other thing that happened uh, on Wednesday after the news program was the cabinet reshuffle. And I'm just going to very briefly highlight one or two stars of the, uh, of the show here. And first of all, Liz Truss. Um, I'm just staggered that she is now Foreign Secretary, uh, Patrick, because uh, I'm not sure. Well, probably less said there, the better. Uh, Nadine Dorries is going to be the Secretary of State or is the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport and she is now going to have responsibility for pushing through the online safety bill uh, and that's pretty key. Uh, Sajid Javid remains health and social care. Uh, ben Wallace remains defence. Uh, Alex Sharma still in charge of COP26. Will it happen? Won't it happen? We don't really know. Certainly some people suggesting that it shouldn't happen uh, because of COVID. Uh, and uh, well, Nadim Zahawi, uh, this is a very interesting move. He was vaccines minister. He is now the Secretary of State for Education. Just at the time, they're going to want to bring vaccines into the schools. Is that a coincidence? Probably not. Possibly not. Maybe not. Who I, knows? I don't think so. Uh, and just uh, to bring one other face on screen, because we should not forget, of course, that everything starts in the and ends in the Cabinet Office. Uh, and uh, so the Right Honourable Lord Frost uh, remains. Uh, the Minister of State at the Cabinet Office, uh, and that is uh, a key position, um, and everybody should be watching very closely what he's doing. Yeah, with, with regards to uh, Zawari, I think you're onto something, Mike. This was just a little uh, propaganda prop we picked up at the newsstand. Jab blitz, jab blitz, get those 12-year-olds. But if you open it up here, there's a full-page spread, Mike. Back to school, back to school. So it's uh, yes, Nazim He's been put in there for a reason. Yeah, uh, well, that's to, how it seems anyway. To, to push those vaccines uh, onto the kids. 
quite simply, that's what he's there for. So to facilitate that, that's what it looks like anyway. If yeah. you, you follow his uh, his pedigree there. Uh, okay, just uh, briefly, uh, another mail article here. Astonishing video shows police stopping traffic to help eco mob onto M25 before they brought motorway to a standstill. Uh, the mail calls it astonishing. It shouldn't really come as any surprise to anybody. Uh, there's a couple of stills from the video of the police stopping the traffic in order to make sure the protesters can get out safely oh. onto the M25 and make sure that a nice tailback is started. Now, uh, the uh, wonderful Home Secretary, Pretty Patel, has said that the police need to crack down on these nasty, nasty eco-terrorists who are doing this kind of thing. But we again see uh, some kind of collusion between state institutions and the protests. Whenever the topic that's being protested against is something that the government is actually behind. Isn't there a word for that? Those groups, that's a controlled opposition. Control, Could be. Con Extinction Rebellion, the eco-protesters, the government love them. They, they love them. They're absolutely partners. They certainly are. Uh, and uh, well, Patrick, I've got to say, we said welcome back at the start of the program, but uh, before we broke up for the summer, uh, you were very much uh, uh, suggesting that Andrew Neil wasn't going to stick around with G GB News for very long. I thought it would be out by the end of July <laughs> or by August, so I got a few weeks off, I guess. But uh, so what? Andrew Neil's jumped ship already. Yeah, he has jumped ship. Now, the BBC pointing out that he had effectively jumped ship uh, in July because uh, because he had stepped back already and gone on holiday and whatnot. But uh, but he's effectively, I mean, he's decided to go now. He fell out with the the management board and they didn't like the direction it was going and the saying things like, well, the audience can make up their mind just how right wing uh, GB News is. But uh, he's taken his money and run, perhaps. He was, he was scheduled to leave. Andrew Neal was only, only on board with GB News at the beginning to secure their first round of funding. Mm -hmm. He's a big name, a BBC heavyweight, doesn't have a clue of how to run a network or a TV channel. He's, he's a good presenter, I guess, and a good little interrogator. But you know he doesn't know how to doesn't know the first thing about running a whole network, okay? Yeah. But he was a big enough name to attract that first tranche of funding. So now he's out of the way. Somebody else is going to fill the void, and I suspect it's going to be a big name, Mike. So we'll see what how that plays out. Okay, uh, and we're going to end then with uh, well, what are we ending with? Some well, we're ending roses. With a, a bed of roses, Mike. A bed of roses, but no, no, no. Look at this. This is the latest cover of Time magazine. That's Harry and Meghan. Take a look at that one. So we are saying most the world's most influential people, 100, so Harry and Meghan top the list. It's a quite a peculiar photograph, isn't it, Mike? Harry's kind of in the background, isn't he? And so, God, who's wearing the trousers uh, in this relationship? So we're going to launch uh, a UK column caption contest. So if you're in the chat box right now, I know there's a few... Hundred of you in there, uh, give us your captions for this new Time Magazine photo with fetching Harry there behind his uh, lovely spouse, uh, Megan. So uh, give us your captions and then also you can email, no, email them yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, email them I in. I guess yes. email them in. And so what are we going to give the winner of the caption contest? Well, you've sprung that on me, so I'm not entirely sure. We'll <laughs> oh, come up with something. A free, tea, free, a free UK free column membership or something. Yes, or membership. We, we will do that. Yeah. So we'll, we, and we will publicize the best caption for this uh, hopefully on Monday. So uh, get your entries in. 
And gosh, look what's happened with Harry. Go back to that picture just lastly. What's up with Harry's barnet, Mike? He's got a bit more hair or something's going on there. Isn't that a totally different think, look, isn't I, it? I think there's a bit of uh, photoshopping going on, perhaps. It's a, something weird at the hair. Anyway, looking great there in the background, Harry. And uh, Megan's uh, really sort of, I think she's probably going courting a career in politics. It won't be long. Future president? It, it won't be long. President of Canada or something like that. Yeah, Not sure. Okay. Okay. Well, look, we will leave it there for today. Thank you very much, Patrick, for joining us. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back at 1 p.m. as usual on Friday. Have a good weekend and we'll see you then. Bye bye.